And so this is not about you pulling up your bootstraps and this message ends, now I gotta try harder. No, it's about you surrendering to the work of Christ in your life. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Leonard Ravenhill tells the story about a group of tourists who are visiting a picturesque village who happened to walk by an old man who was sitting beside a fence. And these tourists come up in a rather patronizing way. And one of them asked this old man, so were there ever any great men born in this village? Well, the old man replied back to them, no, only babies. <laughs> the idea there is that great men are not born great men are made. We don't arrive at a place of greatness or a place of maturity the moment that we repent of our sin and trust Christ as Savior. Now, I wish it were that way. I wish the minute that I received Christ that I suddenly was this mature rock star Christian who was worthy of following, but that just wasn't the case. It's not the case. Though our sin is completely paid for and you and I are made right with God, in that exact instant, we call that justification. Even though that's true, there is a process of growth and maturity that we call sanctification. And, and don't for a minute be misled. You and I will never fully arrive to the final state of things. We call this glorification until our bodies are laid in the ground and we put on our resurrected bodies. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the mortal puts on immortality. That will not happen in this life. And that's both incredibly encouraging and it's incredibly frustrating. We're never gonna fully arrive at perfection in this life. I was recently speaking to some family members who have been Christians for decades. Literally, they've been following Jesus about as long as I've been alive, which of course would be 25 fantastic years. <laughs> These family members were recounting to us that they have moments where they look back over their Christian experience and they see decade after decade after decade of walking with Jesus and all of the victories that represent their life and so much growth and so much experience. And yet, decade after decade after decade, they're still frustrated because of their own lack of progress in their sanctification. That's not just for one or two family members in the church. That is true of everyone. That is the path of every Christian. We're born again, and then we begin the long and arduous journey of growing more and more mature in Christ. Now, that's what we learned last week. We learned that is the entire purpose of ministry. The end game is to see people mature or to present them complete in Christ. That's why we do what we do in ministry. And yet Paul the Apostle is writing here in Colossians to a group of people, the majority of which he's never even met. He's in house arrest in Rome and he's unable to visit them. And so with a pastor's heart, he recounts to them the personal and ministerial struggle that he has for them as he prays for them to continue to grow into maturity. Even 
as there are many doctrinal and practical dangers that are threatening their growth in Christ. And so this morning, we are going to dive into the first eight verses of Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be digging in to what Christ-centered maturity looks like. That's the title of our sermon, Christ-Centered Maturity. And what we're going to see today is that to grow mature, we need these four things. So I want you to jot these down. You'll see them here on the screen. Number one, we're going to see that to grow in maturity, we first need affirmation. And we're going to see that in verse one. Secondly, we need assurance, the assurance of our salvation and the assurance of who Christ is. We'll see that in verses two through four. We need in maturity advancement. And that's that actual progress and growth. And we'll see that in verses five through seven. And finally, to be mature, it's going to take agility. And we see that in verse eight. So let's begin with that first idea, affirmation, starting in verse one. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now remember, the Colossian and Laodicean churches were both located in the Lycus River Valley. They're not far from one another. And both of those churches had been planted by a man named Epaphras. They certainly were poured into as believers by godly men like Epaphras who labored in the gospel to reach them. But it didn't stop there. Epaphras wasn't the only one who had invested in them spiritually. Paul the apostle, according to verse one, was also invested in them. You and I need affirmation, the affirmation of other believers in order to mature. I mean, there certainly could be a few outliers within Christianity who didn't have people invest in them or didn't have people believe in them, didn't have people challenge them or mentor them. But those outliers are very rare. We all need the encouragement. We all need the wisdom. We all need the prayers of people who are more mature than us in the Lord. And we need those people to point us to union with Christ. And so Paul wants to make the struggle that he's been experiencing for them, he wants to make that fully known to them. Now, we would be remiss if we did not dive into the definition of this word that Paul uses here, the word struggle. Now, he had said this same word just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 28. In case for some reason you didn't hear this when we studied it last week, here is verse 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here's where he says it. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That word struggling there is the same root word as the word struggle right here in verse 1. This is an athletic or a military term. It's the Greek word agonizomai. Now, did you notice anything when I said that word agonizomai? It's where we obtain the English word agonize or agony from. So you could translate this struggle. You could even translate it contend. There's an apt description there of what happens in a boxing ring. When you're contending, when you are struggling, it's agony. It's a fight. There's swinging and bleeding and, and blocking and moving, and it's war. It's agonizomai. It's, it's contending. And in Jude's epistle, Jude says that he was compelled to urge you 
to contend for the faith. The same word. Jude is speaking, of course, about the body of orthodox truth that all Christians believe is true. And so Jude was urging the church to fight for the gospel. In other words, to keep the purity and the reality of the gospel message intact because some people in their ranks had snuck in and wanted to pull them away from the truth of the gospel. And so he, Jude, urges them to agonizomai, you could say to struggle, to contend for the faith. I think that things that are valuable are worth fighting for. So no one fights for something unless it's valuable to him or her. That's why Jen and I will fight for our marriage and we will not allow anyone else to capture our hearts or our love because we value our marriage and we value one another. And so she is worth contending for. My marriage is worth contending for. I'm not going to let some guy come in and steal her away. I'm going to fight for her. If someone broke into your home, then he's going to have a fight on his hands because you want to defend your home. Your home is valuable. Thankfully, I am skilled in the martial art of dialing 911. So if a thief ever does come in, he doesn't stand a fighting chance. You see, things that are valuable are worth fighting for. And so Paul says, I want you and I want the church in Laodicea to know that I have been contending I've been struggling. I've been wrestling for you. Well, what does that mean? Who was Paul contending with? Who's he wrestling with? If Paul's in house arrest, how's he struggling against anyone? No, he's not referring to wrestling with anyone physically. He's wrestling for them spiritually, internally, as he prayed for them. I love Paul's pastoral heart. He's agonizing for people in prayer even when he couldn't be with them. And we call prayer for others, we call it intercession. Your pastors at Shoreline Church can relate to this verse lately. We can certainly relate to this idea of struggling for you even when we can't be with you. We as your pastors have been laboring, we've been wrestling, we've been contending in intercession for you because we love you and because we know that we have been providentially hindered lately from being together for a much longer season than we ever expected. And so I love Paul's pastoral heart here in interceding and even wrestling in prayer for the people that he loved and wanted to minister to. I love Paul's actual prayer, which is our second section. So not only do we need affirmation to mature in Christ, secondly, we need assurance. Look at verses two through four with me. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So notice with me that Paul's prayer as he agonizes for these people as he struggles and contends for them in prayer. He's never met them, remember. But his prayer is that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love, and that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of their knowledge of Christ. And notice with me in verse 4, he says this in order that no one would come in and delude them with what he calls plausible arguments. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but this is a direct jab against the Colossian heresy, 
which was a pseudo-Gnostic idea. And these people were creating a schism in the church by diluting the body with their deceptions. In fact, the word diluted here in verse 4 in the Greek has two words. And one of the words is pitho, which means persuasion. And the other word is more familiar to us, the word logos, which is word. So literally, these are words of persuasion. And the reason they were being persuaded is because the Christians in the Lycus River Valley were not seeking the wisdom and knowledge that come from Christ alone. And when you move away from the wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ alone, well, then you are easily persuaded to believe heretical ideas. And we covered this in our first study in the book of Colossians, in our very first introductory sermon. We looked at this, but let's kind of recap it. The Colossian heresy, remember, borrowed from a lot of different ideas. It was kind of a junk drawer where you kind of throw your keys and you throw Q-tips and you throw loose change and all of these ideas fell into the Colossian heresy. So they would borrow philosophy from the Essenes and the Gnostics. They would borrow rituals and religious practice from elements of Judaism. They even borrowed spirituality from the heathen and oriental mystics. But in their teaching, the Colossian heretics believed there was an antagonism between God and matter. And so they rejected matter. Uh, there was in their belief system a series of angelic mediators that you would worship. And Christ was one stop along this journey. They believed that you should practice circumcision and you should observe the Sabbath and new moon days, but you also would practice asceticism where you would deny your body certain things. And they had a lot of strictness in regard to what you could eat and drink. And they believed there was a fullness, we'll cover this next week or the next few weeks, this fullness that you could attain if only you could unlock deeper knowledge. There was all of these ideas at work and this was all a new argument for the Christians in the cities of Colossae and Laodicea. And they argued that, hey, if you really want to be deeper in your walk with Jesus, there are some practices that you need to adopt to be more self-disciplined or more holy or more mystical. There was this hiddenness to knowledge that you needed to dive into and to, to discover. But notice that Paul says, no, all that you need is hidden in Jesus. There's this strange place in our flesh, isn't there, that somehow finds worth in these silly arguments. And if we're not standing firm, we can find ourselves becoming deluded. Bruce says this, he says, Others might lead them astray with talk of mysteries, but there was one mystery above all others, the mystery of God's loving purpose disclosed in Christ alone. And Paul's concern was that they should come to this, to know this all-surpassing mystery, and know it as an indwelling presence. Paul is saying to the church, don't be deluded, and that's been my prayer for you. Don't be deluded by deceptive arguments that seem to be persuasive, but be encouraged as you draw closer to one another and as you have the full assurance of your salvation and you truly know who Christ is and you're assured of who he is. Because according to verse three, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. You see, they didn't need to seek wisdom or knowledge elsewhere. It was all already available to them in Christ. Paul wanted them to reach the riches of full assurance. In other words, you don't need to acquire some hidden truth that's out there. 
No, we can have full assurance of our faith right here in Christ. You know, assurance is one of the marks of a maturing Christian. It's impossible to be maturing as a Christ follower without being settled on the assurance of your salvation and to be resting on the finished work of Christ on your behalf. In 2 Peter 1, Peter begins to describe the growth of a Christian and the various qualities that begin to be added to one's faith as you develop. But there, Peter points out that you can also become stagnant. And that's what happens when he describes this condition as myopia, or we would say nearsightedness. So a nearsighted person can only see what's directly in front of them. They cannot see properly beyond themselves. And when this happens to a Christ follower, Peter says they even forget that they're saved. So we need the encouragement of others, and we need the assurance that we are in him and that he is all that we need. And when there's not assurance, there's not advancement. And that's the next idea found in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul was absent in body, yet he was with them in spirit. He may not have been able to see them face to face, but he had received the reports of their faith, hope, and love. I can relate to that. He's absent from body, but he's present with them spiritually. And he rejoiced specifically about how solid that they were. Notice that he says, I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Those are military words, order and firmness. It's as if the Colossians were likened to an army under attack, and yet their ranks had held together. Their lines had stayed unbroken and focused. Well, then Paul admonishes them to walk in Jesus Christ, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So notice with me the progression in verses 6 and 7. Again, the idea here is advancement. So notice how the Christian advances. Notice first, he says, you did receive Christ as Lord by faith. That's past tense. You've already received Christ as Lord by faith. And then secondly, he says, so now, present tense, walk in him. In other words, you need to continue walking this out. A walk is a slow, progressive, step-by-step -step practice and it's done also by faith. Well, not only that, thirdly, Paul begins to fuse together two totally different analogies, both from agriculture and from architecture. So Paul says, thirdly, that you are rooted and built up. So what he means is you need to have both your roots planted down deep, as well as your growth increasing upward as you grow. That's kind of a future tense idea. So it's the picture of both a tree with really deep and strong roots, but it's also a picture of a towering building that has been well-constructed and well-built. He says you need to be rooted and built up. And then finally, he says all of this is centered around what you were taught, but it's also marinated in Thanksgiving. I love that. So here's how we would understand and interpret this. 
Paul is explaining that sanctification happens when we receive Christ as Lord, but we don't just stop there. Sanctification continues as we begin to follow him by faith. We learn as much as we can to build solid roots, and then we champion little victories as we grow in obedience day after day. And one of the centerpieces of this growth is being well-taught, but not only that, it's also making sure that what has been well-taught is well-received. He says there's thanksgiving. So over the years, I have seen hundreds and hundreds of believers who are well-taught, and yet they didn't abound in thanksgiving, meaning they didn't apply what was learned and show gratitude and appreciation and a desire to implement that good teaching in their lives. It's not enough just to be under good teaching. We also need to implement it, to live it out. You see, Christian maturity needs both the solid foundation as well as daily forward momentum. We don't just start out strong and then just let the wind carry us or, or let time just mold us. You know, time does not always equal Christian growth and maturity. I've seen dozens of Christians who have been believers for decades, but they haven't even progressed a minute. They're still stuck in infancy. They may have started out with a solid foundation, but they never moved upward. They never moved forward. But I've also seen on the flip side, I've seen plenty of Christians take off in their faith and they go out and do great exploits for Christ, but they didn't start out with a strong biblical foundation. So eventually they became easily carried away by every wind of doctrine. You see, we need both. We need a solid and firm foundation as well as ongoing growth and forward momentum. And this happens slowly as daily decisions to walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh are made. Amy Carmichael once penned these words. Sometimes when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. I feel that I shall never be like that. But they won through step by step, by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories by faithfulness in very little things. They became what they are. No one sees these little hidden steps. They only see the accomplishment. But even so, those small steps were taken. There is no sudden triumph to spiritual maturity. That is the work of the moment. Paul says, as you have received Christ as Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. This isn't a sprint, but neither is it a crawl. It's a walk, step after step after step. Have you noticed that you can't arrive anywhere quickly by walking? Have you noticed that? On my phone, I have an app called Google Maps, and sometimes it's frustrating. It is a lot less frustrating than Apple Maps, but nonetheless, sometimes it's frustrating. A few times I've used Google Maps, it accidentally gave me directions for walking instead of driving. And so I looked at it and go, wait a minute, it's gonna take me four hours to get to the beach today? There's a lot of traffic. And then I realized, oh, it's giving me the walking directions. And yet, see, that is the Christian experience. It's a walk. It's not a sprint. So don't lose heart, beloved. Paul is quarantined from the Colossians, but he's still present with them spiritually. He may not have been physically with them, but he was praying for them. He was struggling for them. He was rejoicing with them. 
but he was also concerned for them. You see, there were heretics surrounding the church and seeking to entice them away from their simple faith in Christ. And so Paul wanted to warn them to watch out. And that brings us to our fourth section. And the other thing that we need for Christian maturity is not just affirmation. It's not just assurance. It's not just advancement. But number four, it takes agility. Look at verse eight. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here in verse 8, as well as in verse 4, Paul warns that someone may come with arguments that may delude or even take someone captive. Now, the original Greek in this verse has a bit more punch to it. This is how you'd read it originally. It would read this way, beware lest any man spoil you. Wow. Paul says, beware, watch out. And then he says, there are some men who want to spoil you. No, he doesn't mean with lots of money and with roses and love letters, not that kind of spoiling. The idea of spoil here is like a war where you carry off the spoils of the people you defeated. You carry off the treasure. He's saying, you're the spoils. You're the treasure that's captured in a battle. It's you who's taken captive and taken as the spoil. Now, what type of persuasive words were they to beware? Paul says right here in verse 8 that they were hollow, they were empty, they were deceitful philosophical ideas, and they were based on human tradition or the principles of this world, but they were not focused on Christ. He says that this is philosophy. Now, the word philosophy simply means the love of wisdom. And philosophy isn't evil in itself, but it's evil when you seek it apart from God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you seek logic or wisdom or, or this idea of, of knowing truth apart from God, then that now elevates your wisdom above God's wisdom. Whereas Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Philosophy can be hollow. It can be empty. It can also be deceptive because it can try to lead you away from the wisdom of God and for you to trust in your own wisdom or understanding. And Paul says this mindset depends on human tradition, so it's not from God, or it depends on the elemental, or you could say the elementary, the basic principles of the world, but it's not based on Christ. Now I wonder, are there things that we believe that are based just on human tradition or just on the principles of this world, but are not truly based on Christ? Or worse, they're, they're ideas that work against Christ. You see, the Colossian heretics had some pretty fine-sounding arguments. And it can be really easy for us to be pulled into a debate and then start wondering, What's really true after we hear a persuasive argument or a new idea we've never been exposed to? And so Paul is warning the believers there in Colossae and Laodicea to be ready with a reasoned defense against false teaching. Now, he had the same concern for every church that he ministered to. He also had the same concern for the Corinthians. Paul said to them in 2 Corinthians 11, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere 
and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. The idea here is that there are some who will come with the same approach as Satan, with cunning, with persuasion, and will lead you astray. Listen, if the truth is true, we don't need to be persuasive in it. The truth will speak for itself. When something's not true, then we must be extra persuasive and put extra packaging around it to try to sell it because it's false garbage. And so we need to know the truth and not be taken aside like Eve was by listening to the serpents. You see, one of the marks of maturity is having an agility when it comes to outside ideas or philosophies. Now, we'll see next week how Paul doubles down on the truth of the gospel to help combat the Colossian heresy as we look at verses 9 through 15. But for today, let's take a few moments and let's apply this passage of scripture, verses 1 through 8, to our lives as shoreliners. Based on this text, I would love to see those who are more at an infant stage in their development in Christ to begin growing to deeper maturity. So though this application applies to all of us in our sanctification, this more specifically is for those who desire to grow in their maturity. So this works for all of us, but more specifically, if you're at a place where you wanna grow in your maturity, let's apply this in four ways. Number one, find someone to pray for you and to encourage you. You see, the Christians in the Lycus River Valley They did have pastors and elders who were investing in them, but they also had this father in the faith, the Apostle Paul, who was praying for them from afar. I think one of the greatest and most underrated things that we can have in our arsenal as Christians is a host of godly prayer warriors who are interceding for us. I know that I absolutely would not have planted Shoreline Church if I didn't have a group of people I love and respected who had been interceding and praying for us the entire first year of planting the church. I know for sure that your pastors would not be pastors of this church if we didn't have people around us who were daily interceding, daily praying for us and encouraging us. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if we each had a handful of people who we knew were always lifting us up in prayer? Wouldn't that be amazing? So if you don't have that person, find someone mature in the faith and ask them if they would pray for you, and then keep them updated as they can know how to best pray for you. I personally use the Echo app on my phone, and I have a different list of people whom I pray for every day, and I'm reminded every day to pray for them. Now, just so you know, I never remove people from that prayer list, and it continues to grow, and there are days where, yes, prayer is agonizamai. It's wrestling in prayer for people because there are real burdens and real sin and real needs that people have in their lives. And so we all need people praying for us and encouraging us. But secondly, number two, be assured of your salvation. One who is not assured of their salvation lives their Christian life insecurely and with anxiety. So every time that they sin, they question their worth and the sincerity of their faith. Often when they are trying to worship, they're stunted by a fear or a concern that they aren't genuinely a believer. 
And so rather than resting their faith fully on the word of God, they're easily tossed to and fro. We need to be assured of our salvation. I like the story of a young man who was in seminary and once he had the chance to hear D.L. Moody preach, well, at the conclusion of his preaching, Moody went and sat next to this young seminarian student who was thrilled to be able to meet him. Moody looked over at him and he said, are you a Christian? And the young man said, you know, I'm actually not sure whether I am a Christian or not. Well, Moody found out that this young man was in seminary, but he couldn't answer the question if he was a Christian. And so Moody kindly took his Bible and he opened it to John 5.24. John 5.24, of course, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Moody said, suppose you had read that for the first time. Wouldn't you think that that was wonderful to hear? Do you believe that that's what the Bible says? And the young student said, well, yes, I believe it. And Moody said, well, do you accept it? And he said, yes, I accept it. And so Moody said, well, are you a Christian? And he said, well, Mr. Moody, sometimes I think I am, and sometimes I'm not sure. And so Moody said, read it again. And so he read it again. He said, do you believe it? Yes, I believe it. Are you a Christian? He said, well, I'm not sure. And right then, Moody interrupts him and sharply, with his eyes flashing at him, said, see here, boy, who are you doubting? Well, at that moment, the young man came to realize his lack of assurance came from doubting the word of God. And so he read the text again with his eyes overflowing with tears. And he went on to say this. He said, since that day, I've had many sorrows and many joys, but never have I doubted for a moment that I was a Christian because God said it. Now, what I ask you to do is to plant your feet upon this promise and say, yes, from this moment, I know I am a Christian. That young man went on to evangelize many people and share the gospel and even pen the words to the famous hymn that we've sung here at Shoreline, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. In that hymn, he says this, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul, friends may fail me, foes assail me, he my Savior makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, he is with me to the end. How could J. Wilbur Chapman write that? Because as a seminary student speaking to D.L. Moody, as he read the word of God, he was assured of his salvation. John said in 1 John 5, 13, we write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, when we're assured that we're saved, we can rest. No more striving, no more worrying, no more wondering. No, we're too busy worshiping. <laughs> so if you're immature in your faith, you need to come to a place where you trust the word of God and you are assured of your salvation. Number three, know that you have all that you need in Christ. Paul says in Jesus is found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you don't need to go outside of yourself to look for riches. You don't need to look to some guru, to some diet, to some principle, to some religious notion. All that we need is found in Christ. It's in him and it's in him alone. The billionaire publisher William Randolph Hearst became eccentric in his later years. And one day he was looking through a book of famous artwork and a painting caught his eye and he had the money to find it and to buy it. And so he sent some of his aides to go locate this famous painting and to purchase it for him. Well, 
After a few months, they found the item and he said, did you pay for it? And they said, no, we didn't pay for it. And he said, what are you saying? I told you to buy that. And they said, sir, we didn't have to buy it. You already own it. <laughs> you see, Paul says to the Colossians, he says to you and I, you already have all the treasure and spiritual wealth you'll ever need. All the wisdom and knowledge that you need to get through life successfully is found in Christ. When you originally received him, you received all that you needed. And so, beloved, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and know that all that you need for life and godliness, it's found in him. Well, finally, to grow in our maturity as Christ followers, it's important, number four, to learn how to defend what you believe. The Colossian and Laodicean church, they were susceptible to being led astray and carried off captive by persuasive arguments. And so they needed to be on guard and they needed to give a reasoned defense of the faith. Paul told the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.14 that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Notice that Paul says that we may no longer be children. He's not referring to literal kids. He's speaking about infants in the faith. And so the infants in the faith, notice, are the ones who are tossed back and forth and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Infant Christians are ones that refuse to grow, but they stay in that state of diapers and coddling and cuddling. And they need someone else to feed them. They need milk. They're unable to feed themselves. They need something that's produced from someone else. And they're easily blown around like a ship with no sail. Every time a new idea comes, that takes them to the left. Another idea takes them to the right. And Paul says that this can happen by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. So you can be persuaded by false teachers. You might just be blown around by various teachings that are popular in mainstream society or even that make their ways within Christianity. Now, I've seen this over the past 20 plus years in a variety of ways. People who refuse to get grounded in biblical truth. So a new idea comes along and they just get caught up with it. There was this thing back in the 90s called the prayer of Jabez. And it's a verse that's obscure in the Old Testament. And suddenly that became the mantra that you would pray. I've seen the Da Vinci Code make its way through the church. How do we answer the deity of Christ? I've seen the emergent village come and question truth. I've seen the prosperity gospel come and wreak havoc on what the Bible actually teaches about health and wealth. I've seen the idea of the shack come in and make us question the nature of the Trinity. I've seen Bethel music come in and influence people away from the simplicity of the truth of the gospel. And these are all subtle ideas that can be persuasive and yet very deadly. And they're deadly because Paul says they actually delude us. Listen, we need to learn how to defend what we believe. And that means being grounded in God's word. It means being in fellowship with other solid believers who help encourage and resource you. It means stopping with the excuses and take ownership of your faith and your walk and add some weapons to your warfare. Now, as we close, I want to consider the Lordship of Christ in the sanctification 
of the believer. Our series is, after all, called Lord of All. And Paul says, as you've received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Jesus is Lord. He has lordship over your sanctification. And so this is not about you pulling up your bootstraps and this message ends, now I gotta try harder. No, it's about you surrendering to the work of Christ in your life. One person said this, Christ is in the believer as head, center, and resource. By the vastness of his unsearchable riches, by the preeminent wealth of his infinite greatness, by all that he is essentially as God, by all he has accomplished in creation and in redemption, by his personal, moral, and official glories, he crowds out the whole army of professors, authors, mediums, critics, and all others arrayed against him. You see, church, he is Lord, and all that we need is found in him. So, beloved, let's submit our lives to Jesus afresh today. Let's allow him to work out what he's worked in to our lives. Let's stop resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but let's surrender control to him. And let's stop being Christian babies. Let's go on to maturity. Father, we pray that for every believer who's watching this today, Lord, that they would be struck with the realization of their own lack of sanctification. I know in my own life, it's so discouraging. It's so frustrating. And yet, we're not done yet. And so, Lord, I thank you that you've brought me from that moment of justification, receiving Christ. And Lord, I've, I've progressed in many ways, but there's still areas I haven't progressed. Lord, help me to have grace in the journey. Help us to have grace in our walk and to realize it's gonna take a long time to progress. But Lord, the journey is so joyful and we can, we can walk in Jesus in faith with thanksgiving, Lord, knowing that we're rooted and built up in him and that we are progressing closer and closer to that day of glorification. So thank you, Lord, for the work you have done. Thank you for the current work you are doing. Even in the midst of this pandemic, Lord, you've been really revealing these different character issues and these different things to each one of us about how we need to be growing, how maybe we haven't been growing. And so, Lord, now we have a little bit more of a toolkit to get us there. We realize that we need to have people pouring into us. We need to have an assurance of our salvation. We need to advance step by step, and we need to be agile to defend the faith against false teaching. So, Lord, help us to mature, help us to grow. And I pray for anyone who's watching this who's not yet a believer in Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. They would turn from their sin, repent, and turn to the Son of God, trust Christ for their salvation, and know that their sins can be forgiven. They can be in eternity with you because of the finished work that you accomplished for us at Calvary. So thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place and rising again, and Lord, for making a way that we could follow you by faith. We love you, we commit this day to you, and we pray that you'd help us mature. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.